And indeed, his wounds have paid our ransom, which is really what this sermon text this morning is all about as we consider the power of Christ's cross. Our, our sermon text is found in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. You can find that in our worship folder on page 8 if you want to follow along with me in the reading. So Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. We read these words. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray and ask now that you would attend the proclamation of your word, that your spirit would work, for without the working of your spirit, it is nothing. I pray that we would not hear the words of man, but the word of God, not the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God, and that you would work in the hearts of your people to encourage them through your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When God uh, communicates his word to us, he does so through so many different ways, a a plethora of of genres and rhetoric and literary devices, from poetry to narrative to, to didactic teaching. And it is one of the things that confirms his move towards us so that we might know him through his inerrant revelation of himself. He uses means that we are familiar with to communicate his truth and the truth of the gospel. Among those things, 
that he uses, of which we are familiar, is irony. In language, irony uses an opposite expression to state what is true in an emphatic manner. Irony is truth cranked up to full volume. And Matthew makes use of irony often in his gospel as he explains the gospel of Christ. And it is here in this text this morning that we see the irony of the cross. I mean, here is an instrument of death and torture which becomes a means of life and redemption. And for example, we see Jesus mocked as a king as the soldiers and the people and the priests mock Him as the King of Israel, the King of His people. And in reality, that is true. He is a king. And the people mock Him. They call Him the Son of God, trying to make fun of Him and hurt Him and expose Him as a fraud. But in reality, He is the Son of God. The power of the cross is an irony. And the Apostle Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God for those who are being saved, but to those who are perishing, those who do not bow before Jesus in faith, it is utter foolishness. They don't understand it. But it is the power of God to save because it overcomes all other powers that want to destroy us, our own sin, the kingdom of this world, death, and Satan. And through the cross... Jesus overcomes all other powers. And we see that in our text illustrated so vividly this morning. First, we see the power of the kingdoms of this world are bested. They are beaten by the power of the cross. And the kingdom of the world always claims to have greater power than God. That's human nature, to think that we are gods unto ourselves. David writes in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that is Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And as Jesus is prepared for His crucifixion, By the Roman soldiers, those words of divine poetry come forward. Rome's power, of course, was manifest in her legions, in her soldiers. The iron fist of the emperor has smashed for many years up to this point, kingdom after kingdom. It has oppressed many a people and crushed any other power that seems to dare rise against it. And that boast of power, of ultimate power from Rome, comes forth in the soldiers' mockery of Jesus as Rome tries to smash the kingdom of God by destroying Christ the King. And through a series of five actions taken against Jesus in this narrative, we we feel the intensity and the cruelty of Rome's boast of power crescendo all the way to the cross. 
And at the very center of this mocking boast of the soldiers is their taunt in verse 27, Hail, King of the Jews. And at first we see the Roman troops who are auxiliary troops. They, they are not Jews. They, they hail from various peoples, tribes, and nations in the area of Judea and Samaria. And they take Jesus bound to the praetorium. That is the residence of Pilate, the governor, whenever he stayed in Jerusalem, usually during feast days. And the praetorium was put there as a means to project the power of Rome over the people of Jerusalem and Judea. And they bring Jesus there and they assemble, notice this, not just a few troops. You would think they'd only need, you know, a few to lead this weakened prisoner into the area of the praetorium to prepare him for crucifixion. But they assemble the entire cohort or battalion, as the English Standard Version translates it. That's roughly around 600 soldiers. It's an exaggeration. But it's an intentional exaggeration. I mean, Rome wants to be over the top here. This is a show of power. It's like when the United States sends forth uh, aircraft carrier groups. It's a display of power of the nation. And so they gather the whole cohort against this one who was the king. To declare, no, you have no power. You have no authority. The real authority belongs to Rome and to the emperor. All other challenges to Rome's authority are laughable at best. And so there then, in the presence of all those soldiers, they humiliate and shame Jesus by stripping Him of His clothing and they place upon Him, as Matthew writes, a scarlet robe. This was likely a military cloak, a cheap military cloak, uh, made with cheap dyes to dye it red, of some officer. Probably not a high-ranking one. But it was meant to show some level of authority or rank. And it's placed on Jesus not because they see Him as having any real authority, but in mockery. They're claiming that this helpless man is actually very weak. This is a mere sham of majesty. He had no robes of authority of His own. The only thing that He has is given to Him by Rome. And at best, it is a simple officer's cloak. Next, they weave together this crown of thorns, we are told, and they they place it upon his head, accompanied by a reed or a walking stick in his right hand as a mock scepter. Wreaths of olive or laurel were commonly worn by people of power and authority to show the honor of their office uh, and to boast of the accomplishments they had achieved. Thorns, however are a symbol of the curse of sin upon this world. God tells Adam in Genesis 3 that because Adam had disobeyed, he had transgressed God's law, he had taken that forbidden fruit and sinned against God, part of the curse would be that the ground would now bring forth thistles and thorns, making agriculture, which was needed to sustain life, difficult. And so rather than a symbol of honor, this crown of thorns was one of dishonor and shame. Its point wasn't 
to torture through pain, though no doubt it was painful. But it was to bring further humiliation by claiming that Jesus was no real king. He had no real honor. He was a cursed king. The reed they gave him as a mock scepter was just a common walking staff. Something somebody used as they traveled across the roads that Rome had built. A scepter, of course, a real scepter, isn't a symbol or an object of power. It's, it's been used in many different cultures and periods of history. We see images of stretching forth of the scepter for a subject to touch, to symbolize that the king was being gracious or merciful towards another. It was done to, uh, to express... Uh, uh, that a, a request or a wish had been granted by one who had the power to grant it. But here they give Jesus a simple walking staff for a scepter. And in doing that, the soldiers are saying that Jesus has no power, no authority to truly bless others. He is just common rabble. He has no authority to further humiliate him and to expose him as weak. We're told that the soldiers spit upon him, showing their disgust. The true power, the true honor belong to the emperor, not this lowly man from Galilee. And then they strike him upon the head with that very same reed, no doubt driving those thorns into his skull, causing further pain. And they beat him and they break him and they weaken him. To them, his power is so worthless and impotent that he cannot even protect himself. And having now dressed him in these parodies of power, the Roman soldiers bow before him in false homage, pretending to adore and worship him. Hail, King of the Jews! And yet those very words, as we already observed, they preach truth. Jesus, though mocked as a king, is a king, the king of all the earth. And it is he who in this shameful parody is actually conquering the very power of not just Rome, but of the entire kingdom of this world that does dare take counsel against the Lord's anointed. Because the nations of this earth do resist God and His anointed, as we read in Psalm 2. But the Lord replies to them in that psalm. And we read these words in Psalm 2, 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And as the cross of Christ rises on that hill of Golgotha, the power of the earthly kingdoms is smashed. For they cannot deliver people as they promise. They cannot save them from the miseries of this life and from their own sinfulness and suffering. But the anointed suffering servant on the cross can and does. And He brings to an end the powers of this world and brings them under the power of the cross. 
continuing in Psalm 2, the Lord continues. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, and this is messianic, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your, the earth your possession. He does that through the gospel as it is proclaimed as people come to Christ. You see, through Calvary, the nations become Christ's heritage. And that is why Christ's people you will find in every part of this earth from those crowded apartments where they gather in secret in China and North Korea and the caves of Afghanistan to right here in Ann Arbor as we gather. Christ's kingdom has won through the cross. So through the humiliation of the cross, Jesus now sits exalted above all earthly powers. And one day, one day, every knee from pilots to every one of these soldiers, they will stand before him and bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. For as we read in Revelation 11, the kingdom of this world has become, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And so we see the nations of the earth, they flaunt their power over the kingdom of Christ and over Christ our King. They demand from us our devotion every day of our lives. Politicians and princes boast of their power over people through symbols and armies and taxes and policies and propaganda. But just like the power of Rome that it claimed to have over Christ, none of that can compare to the power of God's love that He unleashed at the cross. The power of earthly kingdoms is smashed by the power of the cross. And that means that the power of Satan himself is defeated as well. You see, in the Bible, Satan is called many things. Among them, he is called the ruler or the prince of this world. He is called the God of this world. He is called the prince of the power of the air. The kingdom of this world is the dominion of his darkness. But through the cross, Jesus delivers his people from that dominion of darkness by transferring them into his kingdom of light. And on the cross, the serpent does bruise the heel of the Son of God. But that bruising also results in the crushing of the serpent's head. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. He defeated Satan and his kingdom forever when he went to the cross. For the cross, the power of the cross overcomes the power of this world and of Satan. Secondly, we also see though that the power of death is buried by the power of the cross. Not only did Rome mock Jesus and boast of its power over him, but we get the sense that death personified does as well. We hear death's dark voice in several ways in our text. And first we see it in the very weakness of Jesus. 
In verse 32, we're told that the Romans found another man named Simon from Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for him. Normally, those who were being crucified were required to carry uh, uh, the the cross section of their own cross upon their shoulders. But Jesus could not do this. He was so weakened from the scourging of the Roman whip and the blows he had received from that that reed, that walking staff. He was too broken and battered and weakened to be able to carry His own cross. And that weakness of Jesus, the Son of God, reminds us that He is not just divine, but He also has a human nature. Jesus was a real man. He took on real human flesh. He experienced real pain and suffering. It's easy to emphasize Jesus' divinity to the point that we forget His humanity. But He had the same body as us. He was willing to give Himself over to the shadow of a death and experience all the limitations we experience. Throughout the, the, the Passion narrative, there are strong allusions to many Old Testament passages, but particularly Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It, it predicts the suffering of Christ and what Jesus would endure. And in mournful poetry, we hear the voice of the sovereign sufferer crying out. He says this, I am poured out like water And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a a piece of broken pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Another place we see death's grin is in the very place of the crucifixion. As we read here, it is called Golgotha, which is an Aramaic word, means place of the skull. Early Latin translations of the New Testament use the Latin word Calvaria uh, to describe Golgotha, and that is why sometimes you'll hear the place of the crucifixion referred to as Calvary. We don't know why precisely it was called Golgotha. Perhaps it was a hill that looked like a skull. The likely reason is that it was a well-known place of execution just outside the city walls. I mean, think about it. Skulls have long been associated as a symbol of death. There is this foreboding sense of death when you see a skull. That's the reason they are on pirate flags, and poison bottles. Jesus was taken to the place of the skull to die. Death was written in the very name of that place. And so it seemed as if the power of death was winning. Another way we see death's bitter power in this narrative is the drink that is offered to Jesus. We read that in verse 34. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Gall is literally, it's the bile from a liver or gallbladder, but that is not exactly what this was. It wasn't real gall. Gall had come to mean any bitter 
sometimes poisonous liquid-like substance. This was likely some sort of bitter herb that was mixed in with the wine, which rendered it undrinkable. That's the point of putting gall in it. Some Bible scholars have suggested that this wine was actually mixed with poison so that it would hasten death and bring suffering to an end quicker. But the more likely explanation is found in Jesus' refusal to drink it. It was so bitter that he, as soon as he tasted it, he could not drink it, even though he needed it. I mean, after the scourging and the beating and the torture he has endured, he was no doubt dehydrated. In fact, we saw that in Psalm 22, where we read that my tongue sticks to my jaw. It was swollen within his mouth. And instead of offering something that would bring some measure of relief and deaden the pain, a drink of wine, they mix it with a bitter substance in order to mock him. It was so indrinkable, he could not find any relief, even from his thirst. And that bitterness points us to the bitterness of death that was so close. Another shadow of death's power is found in verse 35 where we find they actually crucify Him. They fasten Him to the cross. Matthew doesn't tell us that they nailed Him. We we learn that in John's Gospel. But then we read this in verse 35, as they crucify Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. They, They stripped Him of His clothing to shame Him before all who would pass by, and then they gamble over His clothing. And this again is yet another fulfillment of Psalm 22. But think about why they do this. Why are they taking his clothing and gambling? Well, they're doing it because Jesus is a dead man. He doesn't need his clothes any longer. These garments that had long collected the dust of many a Galilean road as he traveled and preached as the gospel of the kingdom and healed and loved sinners, these garments which were once wet on the hem as he walked across the water to save his disciples, these garments whom the sick and the suffering longed to simply touch in faith so that they might be healed, these garments are cast aside and divided up as a prize in a game of chance. Because Jesus wouldn't need them. He was about to die. The only clothing that He would wear from this point on would be the clothing of the grave. Indeed, death is a fearsome enemy and its power seems so final. But it's not. In fact, next week we'll see in greater detail death's final cry. But for now, consider here that Jesus, in going willfully to this death and submitting Himself to the power of death, He is actually burying death itself. God tells us in Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, He Himself... Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong 
slavery. Through his death, he delivers us from the bondage, the slavery of death. The power of the cross buries death forever. Here is an object that once was a cruel instrument of torture, which has now become a symbol of everlasting life. Death is part of the curse as a result of sin. And on the cross, Jesus takes upon Him that curse so that we might be delivered from it. We read in 1 Corinthians 15.56 that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And we also read in Galatians 3 that Jesus became that curse for us Because it is written, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. He took it upon himself so that the sting of death would be no more. Because Christ felt all of it, experienced all of it in our place. Which brings us to the third thing we learn about the power of the cross. And that is this, that the power of sin is broken by the power of of the cross. The power of your sin is broken by the power of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplishes something for those for whom he died. It was not just an open door of salvation, a means of maybe saving people. It actually is your salvation. If you are united to Christ through faith and repentance, this was your salvation. Redemption was realized on the cross. It makes salvation definite and certain for those for whom God saves. And once again, the beautiful irony of, uh, is what drives this truth home. First, notice the irony of with whom Christ dies. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And these two robbers, we know, were imprisoned with Barabbas, who the crowd had chosen in place of Jesus, as we considered last week. And that word for robbers is is the word that means brigands or insurrectionists. These were murdering terrorists, not simple petty thieves. And Jesus, in being crucified with them, is being counted as the worst of the worst of humanity. He's being identified as uh, the most evil of sinners, though He Himself knew no sin. And why? Because He was willfully taking on that sin in the place of sinners. He carried the worst of sin so that He might save the worst of sinners. That is what we mean when we say that Jesus' death was a substitutionary or vicarious atonement. Secondly, we see the power of the cross to cancel sin. By the way, Jesus responded to those who taunted Him as He hung in agony. Crucifixion, of course, was a public execution. It was meant to be a deterrent to anyone else that would dare rise up against Rome. So Jesus hangs on the cross, bearing sin and shame. And as He does so, He is mocked. He is taunted by all the passers-by. The word Matthew uses to describe this taunting of the crowd is literally blaspheme. 
blasphemy. Again, it's a purposeful use of irony because what has Jesus been charged with by the high priests and the elders of the people? Blasphemy against God. And yet here is Jesus who has been falsely charged with blasphemy against God being blasphemed by the very people who ought to be worshiping Him for He is the Son of God. And notice what they say, verse 40, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down now from the cross. They bring up the matter of the temple's destruction as a means to mock Him. And just inside the mighty walls of Jerusalem stood the temple glistening in all of its glory. It seemed permanent and powerful. But here on the outside, on this rough wooden cross, hangs the man who claimed to be the Son of God, bleeding and parched and weak and powerless. The temple indeed in that moment seemed so true, so right, so permanent that its worship was the way to know God. But Jesus seemed just to be another prophet who had come and gone. And yet, in the irony of the words of the crowd, the truth of the Gospel rings out because the cross means the temple isn't needed anymore. And it would be Not too long after this destroyed. But Jesus, in just three short days, would rise again from the dead. He is the new temple, the new way to know God, to worship Him, to enjoy His presence. You see, all the temple worship, which involved sacrifice after bloody sacrifice, was never meant to be permanent. It was only meant to point toward the one true and final sacrifice for sin. That is God the Son. The author of Hebrews writes these words in Hebrews 9. But but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, or you could read temple, because it's talking about the tabernacle, which was the first temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, that is the Old Testament sacrifices, but by means of His own blood, His own death, the cross, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, those temple sacrifices were so temporary, but the cross, it is so final. We don't need to offer continual sacrifice to Christ every Sunday that we gather in order to be made right 
with God. We don't offer up Christ in Mass, sacrificing Him again. Instead, we are gathering and worshiping Him because we have already been made right with God through the cross, which has already canceled our sin. We don't need any more sacrifice. It's already been done. Finally, we see the power of the cross cancels the power of sin in even the taunts of the priests and the teachers of the law. Again, they say to him, words similar to the crowd, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And again, the priest's words drip with irony. Jesus does save others, but He does that by not saving Himself. It's not that He could not be delivered from the cross, but that He would not be delivered so that He might be the deliverer of many. He was accomplishing what He came to accomplish. He was completing the mission. He was making our salvation certain. And only one who is perfect and without sin could make a certain atonement for that sin because it is sin in the first place that merits the curse of death. And since we're all stained with sin... We cannot redeem ourselves, but God, God Himself then must be the one to die in the place of others. And God the Son dies on the cross to cancel the power of our sin. That is what Paul means when he writes in Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's your sin, your sinful nature, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, our transgression of God's law. And how does He do that? These He set aside nailing it to the cross. The power of the cross canceled our sin. The power of the cross conquers the kingdoms of this world and the power of the cross buries death itself. That is the beautiful irony of Calvary. Because Jesus did not save Himself, sinners like you and like me might be saved. He was scourged with a Roman whip and by His stripes we are healed. He was condemned as a criminal so that you might be granted pardon. He wore a crown of thorns so that you might wear a crown of glory. He was openly shamed so that your shame might be dissolved. He was stripped naked so that He might clothe you in His righteousness. He is taunted and mocked so that you might be honored as a son or daughter of God Almighty. He did not save Himself so that He might save you. That is the power of the cross. Let us pray. Father in heaven, 
We are so thankful that Christ, when taunted and mocked and tempted to come down, did not come down. For in staying, He defeated every enemy that rages against us, the world and Satan, our own fleshly sin and the devil. Father, we're thankful that He has won the victory, that the cross has become an instrument of grace and mercy as it comes to us from Your powerful hand. We pray that You would continue to encourage us of these things. Father, for those who do not know this grace, we pray that they might see the power of the cross, that they might submit to Christ, not taunting Him or mocking Him as a king, but bowing before Him in faith and repentance as their king. For in doing that, they will find forgiveness and life and joy that exceeds human understanding. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.